Hello, knowledge seekers. In this episode of 20 Minute Books, we delve into Distinction, a seminal work that has shaped the landscape of contemporary sociology. First published in 1979 by the renowned Pierre Bourdieu, Distinction explores the intricate relationship between taste and social class, arguing that aesthetic preferences reveal profound truths about socio-economic divisions. Bourdieu's meticulous research and original concepts have made an indelible mark on the social sciences, offering readers a thought-provoking analysis of cultural consumption patterns and their implications for class structure. Pierre Bourdieu, a titanic figure in the field, was a professor at notable institutions such as the School for Advanced Studies in the Social Sciences and the Collège de France in Paris. His expansive body of work covered numerous aspects of human behavior, from education to art. Renowned for his intellectual contributions, Bourdieu was honored with several prestigious awards, including the Goffman Prize from the University of California, Berkeley, the Huxley Medal from the Royal Anthropological Institute, and the Gold Medal from the French National Center for Scientific Research. This episode will resonate with students of sociology, aficionados of French theory, and anyone with an interest in uncovering the subtle dynamics that underpin notions of class and taste. Join us as we unpack the layers of Bourdieu's arguments and unravel the ways in which our preferences in music, art, and culture are not merely individual choices, but part of a larger social fabric that defines and reinforces social distinctions. Distinction, a social critique of the judgment of taste. Introduction, how your taste in Ratatouille reveals more than you think. Imagine standing in the kitchen, the aroma of herbs and simmering vegetables filling the room. You're about to enjoy a delightful dish of ratatouille, and as you do so, you might not realize that this simple choice says a lot about you, more than just your penchant for French cuisine. Taste. It's a peculiar thing that tends to silently govern our lives. The clothes hanging in our closets, the movies queued up on our streaming services, the books collecting on our shelves, and even the company we keep all reflect a mosaic of preferences we've cultivated over time. These preferences are cornerstones of our identities. They dictate how we use our resources and paint a portrait of who we are, yet we seldom pause and ponder their origins. In seeking to unearth the forces shaping our tastes, We embark on a journey that explores more than personal quirks or benign indulgences. We venture into a realm where preferences are intertwined with the intricate fabric of society, class structures, and cultural dynamics. Through this exploration, you will engage with an innovative perspective on societal class, understand the dynamics between economic prowess and cultural fluency, and unveil the profound realities behind what's considered good taste in art and beyond. So, take a moment, as you savor that bite of ratatouille, to consider not just the taste on your tongue, but the taste that defines your place in the world. Part 1. From classical concerts to wrestling matches. What your entertainment choices say about you. 
Close your eyes and picture two individuals. The first is dressed in an elegant evening gown or a sharp tuxedo, quietly absorbing the majesty of a symphony at a grand concert hall. The second is sporting their favorite team's colors, cheering raucously at a packed wrestling event. Now ask yourself, which social strata are they likely from? It's a simple exercise that reveals a complex societal blueprint where taste is intrinsically linked to social class. The notion here is simple. Different tastes resonate with different social strata. Social tastes, much like the classes they represent, are usually visualized on a ladder that ascends from the most popular choices typical of the working class to the middle-brow preferences of the middle class and ultimately peaking with the high-brow or bourgeois favorites of the upper class. Perching on this uppermost rung, we find the cultural elite, a group encompassing erudite members of the upper class, as well as influential intellectuals and artists. Affluence may elude them, but their cultural influence renders their tastes particularly impactful. While the nuances of these tastes are not stagnant, and they shift across cultures, eras, and even within the same society due to factors like ethnicity, gender, and geographic location, underlying patterns remain. For example, city dwellers often exhibit different, sometimes more avant-garde, tastes compared to their counterparts in quieter rural areas, independent of class. What was once the epitome of popular middle-brow or high culture in 1960s France the landscapes that sociologist Pierre Bourdieu mapped out in meticulous detail may no longer resonate with us today. Yet, Bourdieu's invitation to apply his conceptual framework to today's cultural landscape remains open. Take a moment to reflect on the current trends where you are. What rings as a popular middle-brow or culturally elite choice in music? The specifics may vary dramatically and respect for the diversity of taste is paramount. After all, one person's pop anthem may be another's treasured opera aria. It's a personal contemplation that does not aim to rank or offend, but instead to observe and understand the rhythm that sets the tone for the relationship between taste and social class. Part 2. Digging deeper than common sense in the science of taste. To dissect the essence of our tastes, we often rely on what seems like common sense, basic correlations between preferences and societal class that offer us a rough sketch of the relationship at play. Yet, while this intuition gets us in the right ballpark, it's far from the scientific precision that one like sociologist Pierre Bourdieu aims for in his research. The intersection of common sense and science reveals a critical truth. To truly grasp people's tastes, we must factor in their inherent thought processes about those very preferences. Consider this. You're walking the streets of 1960s Paris extending exclusive invites to a selection of high-society individuals for circus night. The scrunched nose and appalled expressions would likely meet you as they reject the notion, seeing the circus as trivial entertainment, far removed from their elevated status. This reaction isn't just about the circus, it's a rejection of what they perceive as a lower-class pastime, an activity unfit for their elite social standing. Conversely, propose an elegant night at the opera and watch their eyes light up with approval. The opera aligns with their self-image. It's sophisticated and right for their class. 
This scenario gives us a glimpse into something profound. The way people perceive themselves and the activities they engage in are largely painted by societal classes. The disdain for the circus isn't merely about the event. It's a disdain for the working class association that they believe the circus carries. Likewise, their fondness for the opera isn't just about the music or the performance. It's a nod to their elite identity. Were you to approach the working class with the same propositions, the responses would likely mirror those of the elite, but in reverse. The circus would be an emphatic yes, characterized as enjoyable and suitable. The opera, however, might be dismissed for its haughtiness and perceived exclusivity. These reactions underscore a broader point. Our tastes are not just abstract preferences, but are grounded in class-based perspectives that widely inform our choices. Thus, when studying tastes as a social phenomenon, it's crucial to include these common sense notions. They're an embedded part of our preferences, shaping our sense of belonging, our actions, and ultimately, the very inquiries set forth to decipher the nature of taste itself. Part three, the reciprocal dance between perception and reality in taste and class. Let's unravel a complex social tangle where our perceptions about taste actively carve the landscapes of class, shaping society's very structure. We've discovered that people's tastes are more than just innocent likes and dislikes. They're tinted with their perceptions of class. Dive deeper and you unearth this fundamental principle. People's conceptions about taste and class are not benign thoughts. They are architects, shaping the tangible world of social stratification. The interplay between perception and action creates a self-fulfilling script. Visualize the elite members of society as they wrap themselves in the sophistication of opera, while the working class finds joy among the bustling excitement of the circus. This scene is choreographed by their beliefs about where these pastimes fall on the social ladder. Now take a step back to observe the unfolding narrative. As the elite flock to the opera, driven by their belief that it is an upper-class activity, they endow the opera with an unmistakable mark of sophistication and exclusivity. Conversely, as the working class congregates under the big top, the circus echoes their enthusiasm, becoming emblematic of working-class entertainment. This cycle spirals into a reinforcing loop. The more these activities are chosen by their respective classes, the more deeply they're etched into the class identity. It's a depiction brought to life by collective actions that nurture the initial perception, making what was once a mere belief a profound societal reality. But here's the catch. As these preferences solidify into traits that mark each social class, they continue to fuel the very perceptions that shape them. The opera and circus then turn into standard bearers for the elite and the working class, embedding the notion of what each class represents within society. The implications are grand. Our tastes, guided by perceptions of class, reach beyond the quiet realm of personal preference, extending their influence to mold the actuality of social distinctions. This unveils a more expansive truth, that as social beings, we are not merely observant passengers within the societal vehicle. Rather, 
we are the drivers, mapping the path of social fabric with the steering wheel of our ideas and choices. Part 4. Bourdieu's Inquisitive Leap. Rethinking taste and class through empirical research. Our innate perceptions offer glimpses into the interplay between taste and class, but to grasp the full picture, we must dig deeper. And that's exactly what Bourdieu set out to do with his ambitious surveys in the 1960s. To capture empirical evidence, to analyze and ultimately to redefine our understanding of this complex relationship. Crafting a study requires a compass a hypothesis that guides the researcher through the maze of potential questions and data. Our collective intuition about taste and class acts as the bedrock for this scientific inquiry. Bourdieu's hypothesis was tailor-made to dissect these intricacies, refining our common sense into a precise set of questions ready to be answered through empirical data. Our societal hierarchy of taste spreads from the so-called lowbrow preferences of the working class through the middle-brow interests of the mid-level class, leading up to the high-brow or legitimate appreciations adorning the upper class and cultural elite. But here's where it gets even more textured. Within this upper echelon you find both people with substantial wealth flaunting their luxury items, and those with more artistic leanings who might not possess the same financial clout. The conundrum arises when you try to measure these two upper-tier groups against the yardstick of class and taste. Which ranks higher? The cultural elite with their refined artistic tastes, or the affluent class with their penchant for opulence? Bourdieu saw the ambiguity in our collective judgment regarding this matter, recognizing an opportunity to sharpen the focus and bring more definition to the conversation. This puzzle of perception versus reality, how can our somewhat hazy intuition simultaneously influence and create the concrete societal structures of taste and class. This question acted as a catalyst for Bourdieu. He recognized that while our perceptual map provides a blueprint, the actual landscape of social stratification called for a more detailed chart that only rigorous data collection and analysis could provide. Bourdieu's hypothesis serves as a beacon, illuminating the path to examine and elevate our understanding of taste and class beyond gut feelings and into the realm of verifiable facts. Through this framework, he sought to draw a clearer delineation between layers of class, untangling the threads of culture, wealth, and social hierarchy to construct a much clearer image of the societal tapestry. Part 5. Unmasking the Illusion. Understanding Taste and Class Beyond Face Value. An old physics riddle leads us to an insight about how we understand or misunderstand the world around us. Hold a feather and a bowling ball at the roof's edge, release them, and common wisdom says the bowling ball strikes the ground first because it's heavier. Yet, a physicist would chide that in the absence of air, both would land simultaneously thanks to gravity. So, what does this have to do with taste and class? A lot, it turns out. Our everyday notions about taste and the social ladder are akin to believing the bowling ball hits the ground first due to its weight. It's what sociologist Bourdieu would call misrecognized understanding. This brings us to a pivotal point. Our beliefs about taste and class are essentially misinterpretations of a kind of practical knowledge. 
navigating through life. We've all crafted an internal compass that guides our actions and mirrors our experiences. Yet, just as a compass points north without explaining why, often we too act out of habit without fully comprehending the underpinnings of these actions. Imagine being among the social elite, where your status is entangled with showcasing proper taste. Suppose a visit to an art gallery is in order. You'd instinctively know that praising a complex abstract piece would be met with nods of agreement, while labeling a quaint landscape as plain might affirm your taste credentials. This isn't random, it's a practical knowledge, a silent understanding of what's expected within the echelons of your class. But therein lies the twist. While you can navigate these cultural waters with acumen, articulating the why and how of your art critiques is a different story. In trying to explain your taste, you might inadvertently lean on misinformed or overly simplistic explanations. In essence, you find yourself in the shoes of someone wrongly attributing the fall rate of objects to their weight. In the grand tapestry of taste and class, we operate with an implicit expertise honed through a lifetime of social cues and interactions. Yet when tasked with explicating the cogs of this mechanism, our understanding can take on the quality of misrecognition, shrouding the true intricacies at play. The quest, therefore, is to peel back these layers of misinterpretation and reveal the rigorous social science churning underneath. Part 6. Exploring the multifaceted nature of taste and class. When we talk about someone climbing the social ladder or descending into a lower economic bracket, we're painting with broad strokes on a canvas that's much more detailed than our colloquial phrases suggest. The metaphor of a ladder suggests a straightforward path leading up or down in a one-dimensional space. Yet class and taste possess a depth that extends far beyond this simplistic visualization. In Bourdieu's envisioned model, we enter a three-dimensional world mapping not just height, but also breadth and depth in the landscapes of taste and class. So what are these three dimensions that provide a more vivid depiction of our social and cultural realms? At the core, we find volume of capital. This measures the sum of assets we wield, granting us power and prestige in society. It's not just a pile of money or the possession of goods, it's an aggregation of resources we can mobilize to influence our social standing. The second dimension delves into the composition of capital. Here, Bourdieu splits capital into two quintessential forms. Economic capital encompasses monetary wealth and tangible assets, while cultural capital includes the intangible aspects like education, style, cultural knowledge, and other social signals that endear us to specific groups. Now imagine a constructed elite in your society. Their cultural capital might involve mastering an instrument, speaking with a certain vernacular, exhibiting refined fashion sense, or showcasing a deep understanding of esteemed art forms. Part and parcel of this cultural capital is the educational capital, where degrees from prestigious institutions can unlock doors that others find closed. The worth of your education is not intrinsic to the diploma. It's reflective of societal valuations. It's why today, in a world powered by technology and scientific innovation, degrees in these fields often carry a higher social value. In sizing up these varied assets, we get a measure of one's volume of capital. But how does one balance the scales between economic and cultural capital?
Are they laden with material wealth or culturally rich with less tangible treasures? And, just as crucially, how does this balance evolve over time, ascending in class or maybe witnessing the ebbs and flows of fortune? The composition of capital and social trajectory tackle these dimensions, revealing the dynamic and complex nature of our social standing and tastes. In the next sections, we'll dive into the intricacies of these dimensions, uncovering the subtleties that sculpt our social identities. Part 7. The Alchemy of Social Status, Capital Conversion and Social Mobility. Picture social status as a complex equation, with cultural sophistication and economic clout as the variables, and the ability to switch between them as the connecting operations. This equation isn't purely theoretical. It plays out in everyday lives through decisions and transformations that redefine our positions within society. Understanding our place in the social hierarchy hinges on navigating two pivotal dimensions, the composition of capital and the social trajectory we embark upon. Both reflect and influence our societal bearings. Let's break down this concept. Think of your composition of capital as the ratio between your economic and cultural assets. Some individuals are fortified with abundant economic wealth and cultural knowledge. They're like social titans. Meanwhile, others might lag in both realms, facing the challenges of living on a tighter budget and with less recognition of their cultural worth. However, life isn't always balanced. You might find a lecturer who boasts an impressive array of cultural credentials but lacks financial abundance. On the flip side, an industrial tycoon could be sitting atop a mountain of wealth with little interest in the arts or academia. Here's where the concept of capital reconversion strategies comes into play. It's the idea that one can strategically transform their cultural wealth into economic gains or vice versa. Imagine you're the progeny of a wealthy entrepreneur without a direct path to the family riches. To secure your future among society's upper echelons, you might need to convert some of that inherited financial capital into cultural currency, say by obtaining an esteemed education or becoming a patron of the arts. These avenues, while culturally enriching, often come with a price tag, and that's where your economic resources can be put to use, buying your way into a different kind of elite club. This conversion process isn't merely a one-off event. It's a strategy that may well reshape your social identity altering both your overall capital volume and the trajectory you follow within the societal framework. In this sense, the journey through life's social corridors involves a continuous dance of exchanging and reinvesting different types of capital, with each move potentially redirecting your path through the complex social maze. Part 8. Charting a New Course – Strategic Capital Conversion for Social Resilience In the sea of societal shifts, our social standing is not just at the mercy of personal choices. It's also a plaything for the broader waves of economic and societal change. Just as these waves have the power to raise ships, they can also capsize them, as large groups of similarly situated individuals can rise or fall in unison. Amidst this fluctuation, people wield their capital as a protective shield and ladder converting and exchanging it to either maintain or elevate their status. It's a dance of strategy and foresight, as people actively manage their social trajectories by converting their economic and cultural capital. 
Think of the broad strokes with which we paint social groupings. Terms like working class or middle class cover an array of individuals with varying levels of capital. Among the middle class, for example, primary teachers may boast high cultural capital but modest economic means, while shopkeepers might find their pocketbooks fuller, yet their cultural capital leaner. To zoom in on the finer details of social stratification, we can identify class fractions, subsets within the broader classes that share similar resources and face similar societal trends. Occupations often serve as a rallying point for these groupings. Now, imagine you're from a lineage of small-scale farmers, a proud but increasingly precarious profession. As the tides of the economy shift, threatening to sweep this fraction of the working class out to deeper, uncertain waters, you're left contemplating your next move. Should you pivot away from the fields your ancestors tilled, one path forward could be leveraging what economic capital you have to secure a university degree, transforming it into cultural capital. By doing so, you aim to hop off the track that's spiraling downward and onto one that promises stability or even upwards momentum. A degree could open doors to professions buoyed by the currents of change, such as technology or finance, effectively allowing you to sidestep or ride above the waves impacting your current class fraction. This isn't a journey based on hope alone. It's a calculated effort to redirect your family's story. By swapping economic assets for educational credentials, you're looking to trade in the social coordinates of the past for coordinates that position you more favorably in an evolving landscape. This strategic maneuvering of capital between its economic and cultural forms demonstrates how individuals and families can dynamically renegotiate their place in the societal hierarchy. It highlights the agility required to navigate the social terrains of the modern world, terrains that are constantly reshaped by the larger societal and economic forces at play. Part 9. Mapping Taste. A snapshot of social positions and preferences. With the foundational concepts of social class, capital, and trajectories set, we pivot to the centerpiece of Bourdieu's theory, the relationship between taste and social hierarchy. Bourdieu asserts that if you pause the symphony of society at any given moment, the link between taste and class would be resonantly clear. Here's the crux. People's tastes are intricately tied to where they stand in society's three-dimensional expanse. Let's envision society as a graph to visualize Bourdieu's hypothesis. Picture the vertical axis signifying the volume of capital. Higher points for those brimming with resources, lower points for those with less. Along the horizontal axis, we find the composition of capital, with the right side indicating a dominance of economic wealth and the left highlighting cultural affluence. Every individual, class fraction, or broader class occupies a point or space on this graph. The panoramic view of this social landscape presents a compelling narrative. Taste clusters mirror people clusters within each quadrant of the graph. Consider the university lecturers and artists. Perhaps they hover together in the upper left quadrant. They may not be flush with cash, but their cultural credentials are robust, predicting tastes that are likely to be more aligned with each other. Conversely, Head over to the upper right quadrant where lower level executives and shopkeepers may mingle. Their wallets might be thicker, 
but their cultural investments run thinner, shaping their tastes into a distinct pattern that differs from the academic and artistic crowd. Thus, Bourdieu proposes that the subtle nuances in taste that differentiate one class fraction from another are anchored in the positions they hold on this social graph. Just like a geographical map connects physical locations with terrains, the social graph connects positions with tastes. And just as travelers share experiences in the same locale, individuals within the same class fraction tend to share similar preferences. Through this lens, we recognize the hidden threads that tie together individuals across varied professions via the tapestry of taste they collectively exhibit. It's a revelation that turns society itself into a canvas, with taste splashed across its expanse like brush strokes, each cluster of preferences marking the territory of its corresponding social group. Part 10. Tracing Social Movement. How Past and Present Define Taste. If society were a static portrait, capturing taste would be as simple as plotting points on a graph. But society unfolds across time, each individual's narrative a film filled with motion and change. That's where the concept of social trajectory brings our understanding of taste and class from a mere snapshot to a vibrant motion picture. Incorporating social trajectory enriches the correlations between taste and class opening the door to a richer understanding of social dynamics. Visualize two individuals, Pierre and Bruno, both anchored in the middle-class sector of our social graph. Their current economic and cultural stocks are akin, painting them parallel in the present. However, it's their backstories, trajectories stretching away from this shared point that inject diversity into their tastes. Pierre descends from a higher status, carrying with him a penchant for the finer furnishings of his affluent past. Bruno, in stark contrast, climbs the ladder from humbler beginnings, his taste possibly reflecting a more functional aesthetic. It's a clear illustration of how tastes are projections not just of where we are, but also of where we've been. This trajectory is not only a personal path, but can characterize entire class fractions. As groups within society ascend, they often cast their gaze upward, emulating the tastes of those perched above them, in the hope of merging into those loftier spheres. Such ambition can manifest in the pursuit of status symbols, luxury items that serve as both trophies of success and tickets to higher social circles. Thus, tastes become dynamic markers, subject to the inertia of past experiences and the gravitational pull of future aspirations. They tell a story of adaptability and aspiration, painting a complex picture of individuals and groups in motion, navigating the social strata with forward momentum or nostalgic anchor. It's not just who we are or what we have, but also from where we've come and to where we're aiming that sculpts the landscape of taste across society's fabric. Part 11. Bourdieu's data validates his theory on social taste. We've journeyed through Pierre Bourdieu's intricate web of hypotheses, visualizing how taste intersects with the axes of capital and the paths of personal history. But theories, no matter how compelling, beg for empirical affirmation. Bourdieu sought this confirmation, putting his ideas to the test with a robust survey study, and the data spoke. Bourdieu's research, spanning the social spectrum from the populous Paris to the silent provincial towns, confirmed his hypothesis. 
The constellation of tastes aligns with individual social coordinates. A questionnaire probing over a thousand French citizens navigated through their tastes and social backdrops. It mapped out their preferences in furniture, music, movies, radio, and even their opinions on the controversial terrains of modern art. The answers harvested were not mere ticks on a paper. They were mirrors reflecting economic and cultural capital, both current and inherited. By examining the responses alongside each individual's income, education and familial background, Bourdieu assessed their volumes and compositions of capital. Snapshots of their social trajectory emerged, revealing whether they were on a societal ascent or descent. But Bourdieu's approach was anything but cold data collection. It was a meticulous observation of the human experience. Interviewers gathered the nuances of clothing, speech, and home decor, knitting together the fabric that connected taste to class. The findings, they echoed Bourdieu's predictions. The survey illuminated patterns of preference that clung to distinct social locations as long as their trajectories through social space were aligned. People sharing a slice of the social graph shared tastes, validating the idea that our inclinations towards certain forms of leisure, arts and habitus, are intertwined with our position in the skein of society. Bourdieu's data conclusion sings a clear tune. Tastes, those threads of our daily choices, are woven into the larger social tapestry, colored by the volume and type of our capital and the paths our lives trace through the ever-changing social landscape. Part 12. How Class Determines the Flavors of Our Lives Taking a step back from the myriad specifics of 1960s French tastes detailed by Bourdieu, we distill a fundamental insight about how our preferences are shaped. Rather than delving into the cultural intricacies of a bygone era, let's explore the broader mechanics that link our tastes to our social standing. When Bourdieu speaks of taste, he connects it directly to the tangible world in which we live and the resources at our disposal. Picture this. Food, the realm where taste is not only metaphorical but physical, tells a compelling story of class-manifested preference. Your culinary inclinations are not random whims. They're carved out by the tools and materials you have on hand. The rich can indulge in elaborate, exquisitely prepared meals. Their plates are a reflection of abundance. Conversely, the poor, constrained by thin wallets, may frequent the kind of hearty, economical dishes that keep hunger at bay and muscles fueled, a need that doubles in a physically demanding job. This isn't reserved solely for one's diet. Consider clothing. If your days are framed by physical labor, your wardrobe would reasonably comprise durable, practical attire, ones that can weather both the toils of work and the confines of a budget. These working-class tastes in food and fashion share roots in common soil, limited financial means and the nature of manual work. Such material realities don't just generate individual preferences, they're the gravity that pulls related tastes into alignment. This is true across the board, from entertainment choices to social companions, each reflection of taste revealing the silhouette of the class it stems from. Bourdieu's theory doesn't only reveal the patterns in our present tastes, but tells a tale of cause and effect. The material conditions of our lives sow seeds of preferences, which, as they sprout and grow, branch out into a forest of related inclinations, each leaf and twig an echo of where it took root. 
Part 13. The Root of Preference. How Habitus Forms Our Tastes. Our brief journey into the world of taste, as seen by Bourdieu, has led us to a critical crossroads where every inclination, every preference, and every choice is guided by an internal compass, the habitus. Imagine your life as a complex tapestry of decisions. From the food you relish to the music that moves you, the books on your shelf, the movies that captivate you, and even the hobbies you pursue, all emerging from a single source. This source, the habitus, is where our tastes find their origin and explanation. It's akin to a generative engine spurring our every action, preference, and pattern of behavior, setting our life's trajectory in more directions than we sometimes realize. Let us delve deeper into this notion with the example of the French working class from Bourdieu's study. Their appetites lean towards no frills, substantial meals, and their wardrobe towards the durable rather than the stylish. Beneath these choices lies an undercurrent that values utility over aesthetics, the practical over the ornamental. For the working class, life demands they gravitate towards what is substantial. They seek sustenance in their meals and resilience in their clothing. This emphasis on practical substance undergirds the working class habitus. It's not just a singular choice, but an overarching strategy that dictates their engagement with the world at large. Extend this outlook to arts and entertainment, and it holds firm. A blockbuster with clear narratives and resonant characters entices the working class more than an abstract, form-focused indie film. The narrative's substance and the film's ability to entertain take precedence over any artistic or aesthetic innovation. In essence, the habitus embodies a set of ingrained dispositions that act as the subconscious GPS for our tastes across all aspects of life. It's a fundamental force, cultivated by our social conditions and experiences, that molds our preferences and dictates the lines along which our choices run. Understanding the concept of habitus gives us a key to unraveling the why behind tastes. It clarifies that our affinities are not random nor simply matters of individual quirks, but are reflective of deeper, underlying societal influences that echo through each personal preference and every public trend. Part 14. The Elite Palette. Taste as the yardstick of class distinction. Imagine your sense of taste not merely as a guide for satisfaction, but as a sophisticated tool for social demarcation. For the affluent elite, this is precisely the role that taste plays. It operates as a subtle yet powerful method of setting themselves apart from the rest, a badge of their refined status. The habitus of the elite stands in stark contrast to that of the working class, revolving around an appreciation of form over substance, aesthetic over utility. Affluence allows the elite to engage with the world in a way that transcends mere survival. They can afford to delve into the more esoteric and aesthetic aspects of life, turning simple sustenance into a curated dining affair, transforming basic attire into a fashion statement, and converting leisure into a showcase of artistry and refinement. But lurking beneath this seemingly transcendental pursuit of high culture is a more grounded reality. The essential point is clear. The elite's cultivated tastes serve as a border fence, accentuating their separation from other social classes. The ability to discern and discuss the finer points of art 
or to relish the subtleties of an exquisite wine is not inherent. It's a skill honed by a wealth of cultural capital and an environment that supports and nurtures such discernment, whether through advanced education, exposure to museums and galleries, or growing up amid a collection of classical literature, the knowledge required to navigate the high cultural seas demands investment, investment that is second nature to the elite. This immersion in high culture equips them with a lens to identify not just the merits of a particular work, but also to assert themselves as the type of individuals who possess such discerning insight. A conversation about the brushwork of an impressionist masterpiece does more than critique the art. It signals membership within a social class that is versed in such rarities. Taste for the elite becomes more than personal preference. It is a barometer of belonging, a way to delineate social boundaries subtly, separating those who are fluent in the language of cultural distinction from those who are not. The relationship between the elite's aesthetic preferences and their class identity is thus not just a matter of affinity for the finer things in life. It is a calculated display of affiliation, a demonstration of who they are by virtue of what they appreciate. Part 15. Deciphering Social Codes, The Power of Taste in Defining Class Welcome to a world where the invisible lines of class are woven into the very fabric of society by something as seemingly innocuous as taste. Through the lens of Pierre Bourdieu, we've unraveled how our preferences in food, art, clothing, and more not only reflect our identities, but also function as key players in the grand performance of social stratification. At the heart of this narrative is a simple yet profound revelation. Taste is more than a personal preference. It is the subtle language through which we construct and navigate the class system. Picture waking up to a day where your choices, from the brand of coffee you sip to the cut of the suit you wear, elevate you within the eyes of society to a stature you've never held before. Suddenly, every door swings open wide, not because of any radical change within you, but because society starts seeing and treating you as one of its elite. This scenario highlights that class is not merely a static box we're born into, but a category we slip into through the perceptions and interactions of those around us. Class categorization requires a set of standards, a codebook, if you will. This codebook is authored, revised, and understood through taste. The standards set within distinguish a middle-class lifestyle from a working-class way of living, and they also allow us to recognize and assign ourselves and others into these classifications. Taste is like the DNA of class. Each of us has our unique sequence, and it is through this genetic code that we identify ourselves and are identified by others as belonging to one class or another. It is the framework upon which society builds its pecking order, and within which each of us finds our place. In the intricate ballet of social dynamics, taste directs our moves, dictates our partners, and assigns our positions. And thus, the crux of Bourdieu's message crystallizes into a single powerful word, distinction. Taste, in all its complexity, is the compass by which we navigate the maze of society, a tool for creating, perceiving, and sustaining the distinctions that define our world. In closing this exploration of Bourdieu's theory, we step back to appreciate that taste, in its multifaceted influence, 
underpins the very essence of class. From our humblest morning rituals to our grandest societal structures, it's our tastes that etch the distinctions of class into the canvas of everyday life. Final summary. Every choice we make, from the clothes we wear to the art we admire, is influenced by our position within a complex, three-dimensional social hierarchy. Our tastes serve as a signature of our social trajectory, the accumulation of our capital, and subtly, the strategic conversions of capital types we engage in to maintain or elevate our standing. The elite class, holding the keys to legitimate tastes and backed by substantial cultural capital, use taste as a subtle language of distinction, curating an exclusive identity that sets them apart. Bourdieu's seminal work invites us to see society as a grand theater, where tastes are not merely personal choices, but portals to the vistas and trenches of social classes. In summation, taste is a powerful conductor orchestrating the movements of social classes. It roots us in our material realities and elevates our experiences, shaping how we interact with the world and, more importantly, how the world perceives and places us within its intricate tapestry of class distinctions. Thank you for joining me today on this journey of learning and discovery as we explored the insights of another thought-provoking book in our growing library of knowledge. If you've enjoyed our time together, please take a moment to follow our podcast, give us a five-star rating, and share 20-minute books with other knowledge seekers. Your support truly means a lot. Don't forget to join me again in the next episode, where we will delve into another enriching book. Until then, happy reading and happy listening.